I'd like to speak on this first day of spring about not knowing and trusting. It says in the Tao, spring comes and the grass grows by itself. And in some way, I sense that this is also the spring of the retreat. And it's true, we get some influence from the environment happily and its beauty. But also for all of us together, it's been six or seven weeks of those who are here for two months. It's been close to three weeks, two and a half for those who are here for the month. And I feel in the course of the interviews and the sittings and the contact with one another that you're opening like flowers in a very deep way and also in a very vulnerable way. And actually, it's true for us as well as teachers in sitting here day after day and in speaking with and being with you, we're also opening. And that same vulnerability, I think, is there for all of us, a kind of tenderness. It's true as well that people are in many different places. Some are experiencing on this day calm, concentration, samadhi. Some are opening into grief and healing. Some are opening to space and a kind of clarity and rest in that. Some are noticing the play of the senses and body and the dissolution, the arising and passing of experience. For some, there's physical, energetic opening of the body and the chakras, energy system. Some are in what we might call the Freudian layer, which isn't a terribly fun layer, but it's there in all of us. And what I'd like to do tonight is not do one of the standard Buddhist lists, the four foundations of mindfulness or the three characteristics but to speak of some of the simple and fundamental principles of awakening. The ground of these principles is that we cannot know where we are. Sorry to say that to you, but it's true that our knowing is actually quite limited in that way. Krishnamurti described it in a positive sense as discovering freedom from the known, from what we know and think and imagine to open into the unknown. And Zen Master Dogen said that when we practice, it is like being on a boat on the ocean. We can't know where we are. Sometimes the ocean looks round or square and its aspects are infinite. A story, little girl who was wandering out from her house, got lost in the woods, far out into the woods, couldn't find her way back. 
started crying and weeping and wandering and nothing. It got dark, heard noises, got frightened, sat down by a rock. What to do? Wept, screamed. And then when she didn't come home that afternoon, that evening, the parents got so upset, they called the fire department, the police chief, the, the dogs, the whole um, community was alerted. And they started with flashlights to look through the woods and look for her everywhere. Couldn't find her all night long. <sighs> Next day, finally, just at the dawn is breaking, go, the dark is gone. Little girl is kind of half asleep and frightened. And her father won't give up and is walking, walking through the woods. Finally, he comes to this rock. He sees a little glimmer of someone. He rushes up to her after having looked everywhere. She hears the noise. She opens her eyes. She looks and says, Daddy, I found you. What we find is where we are. When Zen Master Kusan, Nine Mountains was his name, named after his monastery, one of the great Zen teachers of Korea, came to the three-month retreat in IMS one year at the end and visited with his Zen staff, sat up in front and was introduced and it, you know, told a little bit about the practice. He was going to answer questions and things. And he looked out at everybody and he said, oh, almost three months, two and a half months sitting. He said, paying attention, watching, breath, mind, so forth. This no good. <laughs> this no good practice. You not get anywhere. People were rather upset. That's great, Zen Master. That's no good. He said, only one question. Took his Zen stick, pounded it on the platform. What is this? What is this? Only what is this? All this mindfulness, no good. Don't worry about it. Just what is this? Sansanim, another Korean teacher, calls this opening to don't know mind. He'll engage the group that he's teaching and say, who are you? What is your mind? What is love? Where does this earth come from? What is light or gravity? Each time, what's your answer? I don't know. I don't know, people will say. say Good. Just stay in, I don't know. Keep don't know mind. Ajahn Chah used to call it my na, which in Thai means my is negative, no. Na means to be sure. And he'd smile. People would ask him all kinds of questions. And he'd sort of smile back and say my na, which means it's uncertain, isn't it? Was one of his favorite answers. If we seek wisdom, that wisdom comes with a growing ability to rest in the reality of the present and not know, to be with the mystery of things. A couple of stories about mystery. Rodney Smith, who teaches here, hospice director in Seattle. One day, a couple of people came to see him whose father 
was dying of cancer, two adult children. And they said, we have a problem. We got a phone call last night that my father's youngest brother died in a car accident yesterday. But he's so near death, we don't know whether we should tell him or not. It will disturb his dying, maybe. They went back and forth. Finally, they decided, no, let's leave him in peace and not tell him. So they went into the room with Rodney to see their father, talked to him for a little bit, and he opened his eyes wide at a moment, and he said, don't you have something to tell me? And they said, what do you mean? He said, my brother, he died. They were shocked. They said, how did you know? He said, oh, I've been talking to him all morning. Interesting story, isn't it? There's some mystery about death that we don't usually look at. But then we start to study it, and stories like this are reassuring. It's like the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Things are laid out, and first you let go and you see the clear light and then these Buddhas arise and then this realm arises. It seems like, well, Rodney's story kind of reassures us that there's some contact after death. A follow-up story. Stephen Levine working with young children as they were dying some years ago. All his hospice work. One little boy dying of cancer would get near death and then come back several times, opened his eyes, said, Stephen, there was this light. Stephen said, yes. I went in a tunnel. The usual, right? Okay, light tunnel. Stephen's just there listening. And then he said, and I was mad. I saw him. Stephen nods. Who did you see? He said, Raphael. Not the archangel Raphael. This was Raphael the teenage mutant ninja turtle, (laughs) who in those years was one of the wisdom figures in the children's play that this little boy was involved with. So here he was dying, and there's the light in the tunnel, think it's his grandparents, and who meets him but Raphael the teenage mutant ninja turtle. Now what does that say? Does it say that we're making all this up? It's possible. Or does it say that the light that we open to gets filtered through the images that we hold dear? Don't know. Someone went to the Buddha and said, you're a Buddha, is that right? And the Buddha said, yes. Said, fine, I have a question for you. What happens when you die? And the Buddha said, why do you wish to know? And the man went on, because I'll know how to live my life. The Buddha said, well, suppose I tell you that there are many lifetimes, karma, many lives, how would you live your life? The man said, well then, if that's so, I would want to be really wakeful because it sows the seeds of wisdom to come and attentive. I'd also want to be very generous because it would make the karma of abundance in the future. And I'd want to be kind to people because it would make love grow in the future lives. The Buddha said, just so, my friend. Now suppose I were to tell you that there's only one life. How would you live? And the man reflected and he said, 
I want to be very attentive, if this is the only life I have, to really live each day. Oh, yes. And I'd want to be generous, since you can't take it with you. Might as well enjoy the sharing of it. Oh, and I'd want to be especially kind if this was the only time that I would be with the people of my life. Same answer. And the Buddha said, just so, my friend, and said nothing further. Here he goes on in another text. He says, this I declare, after investigation, there is nothing in all the philosophies, all the views and all the opinions that such a one as I would embrace. Seeing misery in them all, I have discovered instead an inward peace that rests on nothing. Not by any view or the absence of it can one discover freedom. Not by opinion or tradition or virtue or holy works or by the absence of opinion or tradition or knowledge or holy works or thinking oneself above or equal to or below. For the sage, such views do not exist. With whom should such a one enter into dispute? The wise one does not, by opinion or view, become arrogant. They are not led into the resting places of the mind. And for such a one who is free, there are no entanglements, no conflicts in the world. Who could argue with such a one? But those who grasp after views, they wander around the world annoying people. This, I think, is the Buddhist little joke in there. I teach one thing, said the Buddha, and one thing alone, suffering and its end. Not knowledge or virtue or insight or concentration is the purpose of my teaching, goes the Buddha. But the sure heart's release, this, this liberation of heart, this and this alone is the purpose of the teachings of the Buddha. So if we don't know where we are, what can we know directly, which is wisdom? I ask groups sometimes, what what do you really know? No matter what was said, you know it so surely. People will raise their hand. Things change. This I know. Or, for every form there is an opposite. There's pleasure and pain and gain and loss, and light and dark, and sweet and sour, seems to be made up of that in birth and death. Whatever opinion I have, there's another. That grasping to what is impermanent causes suffering. Someone described the first noble truth as rope burn, right? Holding on to what's ungraspable. So here we are on this long retreat, and your unfolding is not linear. It doesn't get better and better and better, like some graph in math class. And there's no stabilizing of the mind where you get to some enlightened retirement. It doesn't happen that way. It doesn't happen here. It doesn't happen in Burma or Tibet. 
if you really go in the monasteries and see how practice unfolds, it is more like being on the ocean or going down an uncharted stream or having a flower that's yet unknown poke up from the spring sunlight and begin to open petal by petal. You are opening new dimensions. So how to practice given this truth? How to find a deeper wisdom or the sure heart's release given that we don't know where we're going? The invitation from the Buddha, Ajahn Chah describes as taking the one seat, sitting down and taking the seat in the midst of the world, opening the doors and windows, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind, and allowing the world to display itself while we rest in this seat, and all wisdom will show itself. Here are some of the principles to keep in mind as we take this seat. First principle is a deepening capacity for presence in all the realms, for an awareness. A Zen master Rinzai describes himself being one who enters fire without being burned, goes into the water without being drowned, plays about in the three deepest hells as if in a fairground, and enters the world of hungry ghosts or frightening animals without being molested by them. Why is this so? Because there is nothing such a person dislikes. The first principle is this deepening capacity for what we call sacred presence with the body that Marie described last night, with feelings, with perceptions, with thoughts, with consciousness. And when people come into interviews, our first question in some way is, can you be with that? Whatever it is, can you be with this? Whatever it happens to be. And sometimes it's bliss and samadhi you know, profound opening. And sometimes it's contraction, loss, fear. And you know, it's amazing because we get lost. We're walking down to lunch and our mind starts to think about a whole story of how we're going to leave the retreat at the end and tell people what happened to us. And, you know, we're in, the, we're in the cafe or we're there with those people and we're describing our whole retreat and it's changing our life and great things are happening. And all of a sudden, the moment we just wake up and it's like the bubble pops. And there we are, just putting the next step down on the road and there's the line for lunch in front of us. And for a moment, there was that whole world and then it disappears. Or we take a cup of tea, you know, you drink a cup of tea and it's warm and it's fragrant. And for a moment when you're present, the whole world is that cup of tea. Or you come and sit and take the first breath. I won't talk about the second or third, but that first breath. And for a moment, there's just the breath. We deepen this capacity to be present for whatever is. 
I asked um, Aiken Roshi at a teacher's meeting. He was about to retire. He was giving his, his life story, talking about koans. Would he give us the answer to one koan before he retired? So he said, when he was a young Zen student, Yogan Senzaki had a beautiful bowl. And the bowl that he had had inside it a spiral that went from the center out to the rim, or from the rim to the center, couldn't tell which. He held, the master held this bowl, and he said, you tell me, does the spiral go from the outside in or the inside out? That's the koan. Huh? What's the answer? And he went and talked for a while, and it was the end of the talk. I said, so what's the answer? And he got up, he's nearly 80, and he was kind of frail and tottered a little as he stood up from sitting so long. And he said, here's the answer. And he held out his arms and became the bowl. And then he turned first one way, and then the other. And then he bowed. That was his answer. Can you sense deepening in you this capacity to enter into the moment, to the cup of tea, to the step on the path, to the breath, to the thoughts that rise and fall? This is the first principle. Not knowing where we're going, where we're going is here. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it will be very difficult. This is from a friend, part of this new book of interviews with spiritual teachers and what their experiences were. After many years in both Buddhist and Catholic um, retreats, it was on a long solitary retreat, the indescribable happened. The closest I can come is to use St. Augustine's words, I saw that God was closer to me than I was to myself. God was like a vast ocean and everything I was used to experiencing was a thin membrane, myself floating on the surface, insubstantial, then gone. When the bliss and divine openness that came with this realization subsided, as it will, some months later, I fell into a profound heaviness and dread. It was the beginning of a period of hell, like St. John of the Cross's dark night. I moved, oh, after this huge emotional outpouring, everything became stuck in darkness, without feeling, without meaning. I moved back to Ohio to be near my daughter. I took a meaningless job. My body developed asthma and hives. The endless inner pain, loss made me feel desperate, close to suicide, though outside it all looked normal. Prayers, meditation, nothing brought me back. After months of this suffering, I finally got so overwhelmed, I threw myself down on the bathroom floor and cried out to God for mercy because I couldn't go on. In an instant, the whole tortured state of being drained out of me like water out of a bathtub. For two hours, I sat there on the floor in bliss, joy, and peace. I saw that all the difficulty was the divine work and I remembered my trust, and that these sorrows are part of the path. And after two hours rest, I was able to acknowledge that I could take it, and that if it was part of God's work, I wanted it. 
And the very moment I thought that, unbelievably, it all came right back, rising up from below as if the bathtub were filling again. Everything was exactly as before, exactly as painful and terrible, but that tiny period of divine mercy made all the difference. I knew I could take it, that I wanted to live through whatever God gives me no matter what, and a huge gratitude arose for the tenderness and the grace, where it's as if, like the tenderest of mothers following just out of sight, longing to help us and catch us if we fall, there is some great spirit. It was there in the worst of my pain that I learned I had no choice but to live in God's grace. So our presence is asked to trust the unfolding. And it's eminently trustworthy. It wants to open in the way that it needs to. Can we rest in this, in disappointment and loss, in openness and bliss and samadhi, and then the change again after it? Katagiri Roshi, some students came up to him one day and said, We so admire your warmth and confidence and steadiness and love and ease. How do we learn that from you? And he paused and he looked back and he said, when you see me sitting here, you don't see the years that I spent being with my teacher, just cleaning the altar and lighting the candles and sitting in meditation and serving the meals over and over and over again. That's really what we're doing, this kind of sacred activity of being present for whatever arises from the Tao. Rushing into action, you fail. Trying to grasp things, you lose them. Forcing a project to completion, you ruin what was almost ripe. Therefore, the master takes action by letting things take their course. She remains as calm at the end as in the beginning. She seeks nothing, and she has, therefore, nothing to lose. What she desires is to unlearn. She simply reminds people of who they have always been. And when she cares about nothing but the Tao, she cares for all things. So even though we can't know, we can know this capacity to be present for all of it. The second principle is the need to discover a profound compassion. If we are opening to this, what the Buddha called the sure heart's release, the great heart of a Buddha, We have to understand what the Buddha discovered, that there's an amazing healing capacity of the heart of compassion. The medicine Buddha, the Kuan Yin that sits on our community altar. Because as we sit over the course of a long retreat, for most people, Everything will come. Eric Fromm writes, 
I believe that every man and woman represents humanity. We appear different as to intelligence, health, or talents, yet we are all one. We are saints and sinners, adults and children, and no one is anyone's judge or superior. We have all been crucified with Christ and awakened with Buddha. We have killed and robbed with Genghis Khan. And today our life gives us a choice as to which we will follow. It doesn't take long to sit and see all of this. And then the question is, can we meet it with tenderness? It's like the Christian desert fathers, you know that story where a young monk goes to the abbot and says, the monk, the new monk near me is always falling asleep. Should I tug on his sleeve or maybe pinch him to keep him awake? And that kindly abbot looks back and said, if a brother were falling asleep near me, I would put his head in my lap so that he might have a soft place to rest. Another story. I mean, your roommate, your yogi job, the person who sits near you in the hall and sniffles or coughs or, you know, does whatever it is that you don't necessarily think is optimal for your own enlightenment, <laughs> right? It actually might be perfect for you know, your enlightenment, but it's not what you think, right? Being in community. Where is it? Uh, here we are. This is some nuns speaking. In my second community, there were only a dozen nuns. I liked all but two. One was lazy, and the other was self-absorbed. After my first year, I was in the kitchen complaining about them to a friend who said, you know, these are really not bad people. What is it that gets to you? And I said, one is lazy, and the other takes too much care of herself. And she replied, well, you ought to be more lazy and take better care of yourself. Do you understand? Mercy. At some point, most of us will touch our own grief or loss or pain that we carry in ourselves or that we carry for the world. Jane Goodall said that, in this talk I heard her, that if a little songbird is not taught its song in the first month of its life, it can never learn it. If a little songbird is born and put in the nest of some other bird and doesn't hear its own song in the first month, it won't learn its song. And sometimes we feel like that bird, but it's not true for humans. Because humans, even if we weren't held and given our song, we can relearn it. It's like Marie's reparenting. And some of the deepest healings take place when we don't dismiss the difficulties, but enter into them. A man came to see me when I was teaching on the East Coast, doing Vipassana and Tibetan practice. And he was doing the Nundro, the 100,000 prostrations that his Lama had given him. He'd done about 5,000 of them, and he was going nuts. He said, I really wanted to do this. I wanted to do, go to a Tibetan monastery, and I've gotten to where I am numb. I am so resistant. I just don't want to do it. And I went to see my Lama, and my Lama says, you just keep doing it. You know, That's the kind of um, 
traditional instruction. You just do it, which is a fine instruction. But we're doing something a little bit different here in addition to that instruction. And I said to him, well, I'm curious. You know, not only might it be good to keep doing it, but let's see what happens when you do it. What's actually going on? Because something's happening. So I said, let's do it together. He stood next to me, and we set up this imaginary altar. And the boughs are refuges, really. You're going to take refuge in your Lama, and in the Buddha, and in the lineage of teachers. And it's really a hundred thousand boughs to entrust yourself to the teachings and the lineage. And he started to bow, first bow, and he said, I feel it. I feel like I could throw up. I feel numb. I hate this. I don't want to do it. So I had him close his eyes and begin to name it. Hating, hating, num, num, space, space, you know, empty, empty, a fear, fear. And as he stayed with it, I said, all right, feel all this and just stand there. Don't do anything. Just pay attention. And now let, as you feel it, let whatever needs to be known with this, because it's come again and again, be known in your heart. And all of a sudden, tears started to come down his cheeks. And I said, what is it? He said, I'm six years old. And my father's just been taken to the hospital with a heart attack. And my father loved me. I loved my father. My mother was exceedingly difficult and cold. And my father was taken to the hospital with a heart attack. And he came back. He was not the same man. And he didn't live for long after that. And I'm there, and I'm so frightened. I'm hiding under the bed, and my mother's calling me, and my father's gone. And I said, and what do you believe as that little six-year-old? And he said, I believe that I can't trust anything anymore. How could I take refuge in anything? And he was shaking. So I had him just stay with all that experience while I was there. And just allow it to hold that six-year-old, to hold all the feelings with compassion. And then finally, I said, if you could have any being do prostrations with you, anybody help you, who might it be? Imagine, picture somebody coming to practice with you. And it turned out that it was Kuan Yin who came. She stood next to him and put her hand on his heart said, yes, I'll bow with you. Held the little boy and this man, and they began to bow together. And he just held all the grief and all the sorrows and all the vulnerability that was opening in him with kindness. As Martin Luther King said, we will meet your physical force with soul force. We will soon wear you down by our capacity to suffer. This kind of dignity in this compassion, it doesn't seek to fix the world or turn away from the world or judge the world, but to love the world as it is and to love ourselves as we are. A friend of mine who works for the United Nations interviewing people who come into this country from areas of conflict, hear some of the worst, terrible stories. Can't imagine. And she didn't know what to do with all this. And we talked about making a big altar in her office and putting on the altar 
Buddha and Mary and Jesus and Kuan Yin and actually since she saw people from all around the world she put Haitian gods on there. She put a a passage from the Quran on the mercy of Allah in Arabic. She would sit there and behind her was this altar and instead of holding the stories herself before she started each day she would bow to it as if to ask the ancestors, the Buddhas, the Bodhisattvas, all to hold together the stories that she heard with her. This is the second capacity, no matter what comes, this great heart of a Buddha. The third principle, presence. Can we be present? Compassion, can we see it as a part of this world that we open to? Is to discover a shift of identity. There is, as you see in the course of the retreat, an amazing capacity of consciousness to enter into all sorts of forms, small and large. Sometimes we're in the body of fear, the small self. Sometimes we let go into timeless realms, vast space, openness, or simplicity with no time, no self. The Buddha says the mind is the forerunner of all things. With the mind we make the world. We are what we think. All that we are arises with the mind. Speak or act with an impure mind and trouble or sorrow will follow you as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. Speak or act with a pure heart and happiness will follow you as close as your shadow, unshakable. We are what we think. All that arises, arises with our thoughts. Or Tagore, who says most of us think of the mind as a mirror more or less accurately reflecting the world outside of us, not realizing, in fact, that the mind is the principal element of creation. So we sit and we get the realms, heaven realms, hell realms, hungry ghost realms, human realms, animal realms. You've seen them. Just stand in the lunch line. You get the hungry ghost realm sometimes, you know. Spring day, the heaven realms, sometimes. The capacity of consciousness to shift. There we are, as I said, walking down toward the dining room, maybe for breakfast, lost in this thought about telling somebody how our retreat was or making something happen. And then in a moment we wake up and say, boy, that was a whole story, wasn't it? We were in it. And then it's just gone like that, far out. With attention, the nature of consciousness opens up. And two particular dimensions show themselves. One is the dimension that comes through concentration, upachara samadhi, in which we enter into the different states of consciousness. Like Thich Nhat Hanh says, we change the movie channels from heavens to hells. One moment, if we really focus on it, we have the mind filled with metta, 
or filled with light or filled with bliss or filled with lust. You remember that sitting? You know, or filled with desire or filled with judgment or anger. And we give ourselves to it and the consciousness gets flavored by it. And we see it can take any different experience and fill itself. And the more concentrated you are actually, the more powerful those experiences can be. The other kind of samadhi, kanika samadhi, that we practice moment to moment, is not involved in entering or creating a particular state of consciousness, however refined or blissful or open. But it is involved in noticing the process of life itself. It's as if we turn the mind back in the movie theater instead of seeing the comedy or the tragedy, Woody Allen or, you know, um, whoever it happens to be, George Lucas making the movie. And we look back at the projector and we say, oh, wow, this is just a movie. And that happens when we ask, who is this that's experiencing all these states of consciousness? Who is it that's born into this body? And we look, and there are moments of seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting that Marie described and touching. And at times it's very mechanical, seeing and the knowing of it, hearing and the knowing of it, intention to move, that mental state, and then the movement, mind and body, body and mind, one after another. Sometimes it's just arising and passing very quickly. There's a thought, there's a perception, there's a sound. There's all these kind of bubbles of experience in the space of knowing. Sometimes very blissfully, sometimes it gets actually frightening. Who am I? And that fear is actually one of the necessary states of meditation. You know, I talked about it before. When fear comes, it's like this little signal about to grow. Something new is about to happen. But if we stay with that looking and opening, behind the fear comes, which is that small self, becomes revealed an openness or an ease. Behind the weakness, if we stay with it, oh, it opens into strength. Behind contraction, if we allow it, there will eventually come a ground of well-being. And it can get so refined. We can have such beautiful states. Let go and open to the most refined places of just pure knowing. This is from Nisargadot. He says, it's actually a dialogue. Someone says to him, when I ask a question and you answer, what exactly happens? He just sat there in this great space and he said, the question and the answer both appear on the screen. The lips move, the body speaks, and again the screen is clear and empty. This is the place where looking into who am I and it opens to space. When you say clear and empty, what do you mean? The questioner goes on. I mean free of all contents. To myself, I am neither perceivable nor describable. There's nothing I can point to and say, this I am. You identify yourself with everything so easily. This I find impossible. The understanding I am not this or that is so clear that as soon as a thing arises, 
there comes at once that knowing that it is not myself, neither object nor subject. I don't understand what you mean by saying you're neither subject or object. When we're talking, aren't you there? He says, look, my thumb touches my forefinger. Both touch and are touched. When my attention is on the thumb, the thumb is the feeler, the finger is myself. Shift the focus of attention and the relationship is reversed. Now myself is touching the thumb as the object. I find that somehow by shifting the focus of attention, I become the very thing I look at and experience the consciousness it has. I become the inner witness of the thing, like Aiken Roshi in that bowl. I call this capacity of entering other points of consciousness love. You can give it any name you like. Love says, I am everything. Wisdom says, I am nothing. Between these two, my life flows. Since at any moment I could be the subject or the object, I express it by saying I am both and neither and truly beyond. And in the great space, the great dark space, there is then only one movement, the movement of love. So this third capacity is this capacity for consciousness to shift and enter into any of the channels or to turn back and see, oh, this is the play of consciousness, very refined or very unrefined. And we get to amazing places. This is the description from one Zen master of their experience of how in meditation I had felt bliss before, big waves, but this was different. The struggle stopped, my mind became luminous, radiant. I felt like the Buddha sitting effortlessly, hour after hour, unending peace, unspeakable joy. I rested in this, my body floating, mind empty. I saw the truths of life, that following the small sense of self, this false ego, we run around like a petty landlord squabbling over nothing. I wept at our unnecessary sorrow. I saw the whole idea of spiritual renunciation as kind of a joke, trying to make oneself let go of ordinary life and pleasures. In fact, nirvana is so open and joyful, is so much more than any of the small pleasures we grasp after. You don't renounce the world, you gain the world. Sounds great, doesn't it? Is this the end of the story? Here's what I say in the beginning of this book. We all know that after the honeymoon comes the marriage, and after the election comes the hard task of governance, and in spiritual life it is the same. After the ecstasy comes the laundry. So I go on, if you allow me to. There is no enlightened retirement. I had all these experiences meditating at Mahasi Sayado retreat center, you know, this kind of classical dissolving the body. Sometimes they happen, sometimes they don't. I mean, one teacher I interviewed in here about how their practice unfolded, who's a very well-known teacher, said, here I am a teacher for hundreds and hundreds of students who have these powerful openings sometimes, but the hardest thing for me, I asked people, what was the hardest thing you've gone through? said, 
this wasn't my way. For a long time, the hardest thing for me to accept was that nothing happened. I'm not a person with big dramatic experiences. For 30 years, it's just been a process of practicing without being caught in my ideals of what should happen. And yet everyone around me says that I've been totally transformed. So I went back to Ajahn Chah, and I had these experiences. I, you know, I was a young man. I sat 12 hours, 24 hours. I'm not going to move. Pain, light, and all that stuff came. It's what young men do, right? Anything difficult to do around here? do it, right? And I told him about all this stuff after I'd lived with him and went off, came back from Burma. He listened. He said, oh, very fine. He said, something else to let go of, isn't it? That was his only answer about it. I go on with this story, that Zen masters that I read about, that teacher in the beginning of the book. Because usually we stop there. He lived happily ever after, right? Isn't that the way spiritual stories are written? But the next chapter, some months after all this ecstasy came a depression, along with some significant betrayals in my work. I had continuous king trouble with my children and family, too. Oh, my teaching was okay. I could give inspired lectures. But if you talk to my wife, she'd tell you that as the time passed, I became grouchy and as impatient as ever. I knew this great spiritual vision was the truth. It was there underneath but I also recognized how many things didn't change at all. To be honest, my personality and mind were pretty much the same. My neurosis, too. Perhaps it's worse, because now I see them more clearly. Here were these cosmic revelations, and I still needed therapy just to sort through the day-to-day mistakes and lessons of my human life. So where are we going? Is there some state? What's next? What do you look for? As Ajahn Chah would say, my na, we don't know. You really don't. Freedom, Krishnamurti says, is a pathless land. If we don't know, then how do we guide ourselves? We guide ourselves with these simple principles, the principles of sacred presence, of compassion, of openness, of knowing the truth of consciousness so we're not identified. These are descriptions of the bodhisattva's way. The bodhisattva is a being who doesn't seek to understand the world, but to bring freedom into the world, which is a different thing. I vow to bring awakening to all beings, liberation to all beings, even though they're numberless. Difficulties are numberless. I vow to overcome them all. I vow to master the Buddha's way. How do you do this? I'm going to go out and save every being? It's a rather um, presumptuous sentiment, isn't it? It's not a task that one sets and measures, okay, today I saved three beings, now there are only this many trillion left to be saved. Instead, what it is, is a direction. It's like the compass of how we live. Suzuki Roshi put it this way. He said, even if the sun arises in the west, the bodhisattva has only one way. Even if the world is turned upside down or falls apart, the way of the bodhisattva is in this moment presence, compassion, 
and the wisdom that knows things as they are, that freedom of heart that not only do we experience, but we allow for all things around us. Can you, at this point in your retreat, trust? Because your opening is totally trustworthy. If you bring your heart and your presence and your compassion, it wants to open. It knows how to open in its own way, not according to our ideas, but into the, in the deepest reality, it will open. And all that's asked is your heart's intention as the bodhisattva to say, yes, I will open. Instead of running from this life, I will take the seat and allow this unfolding. And you won't know it. It's like St. John of the Cross said, if a person wishes to be sure of the road they tread, they must close their eyes and walk it in the dark. Wisdom is not knowledge. I've got the map. I know where I'm going. I hope not. That would be a pretty terrible world, actually, to know the end of the road. You wouldn't want that world anyway, even though some little part of you might like it. Remember the story of people practicing on the three-month retreat at IMS that I've told. Did I tell that here yet? one of my talks? No? Eugene's heard it before. Huh? And in the end of a three-month retreat, the second year, somebody comes and says, how are these students doing? How's Mary or John doing? Did I tell that story? And I said, John's doing fine. You know, he's had a really hard time in the beginning, but things are opening up for him. Well, how is Mary doing? Well, she's you know, she's actually in a really good space now. Well, well, how about Clarissa? Oh, Clarissa went through a lot of grieving. And she's doing okay. She's doing good. And I kept saying people were doing good. And then they looked at me finally and they said, well, when you say somebody's doing good, what does that mean? And I had to think about it because it was just kind of glibly coming out. And I thought about it and I said, it means they haven't left yet. <laughs> and I was serious about it. When I look out here, and, and when I look at myself too, it's not like we're sitting here knowing what's supposed to happen for you and so forth. We, we have had a lot of experiences in our meditation, and it's part of what enables us to be helpful to you. But we don't know either how it's going to unfold. But I can say this, that I've really learned a deep trust in this process over and over in myself and with others. I trust it. I trust the ground of our being. And I see you all learning to be free, to live fully, to be present, and also to die well. I really see these retreats as a training for your death. Because when you have learned to be present moment to moment for all the things that come, then you know how to be in the presence of death, of that great mystery. And it's such a gift to have for yourself or others. So I feel an enormous privilege to share this space of opening, of flowering, of not knowing, of your sufferings and your beauty, 
of all the things that come. I think we all do. We feel a tremendous privilege to share this, to be in the presence of this awakening of your Buddha nature. And you remember when Thomas Merton, on his last journey to Asia, went to Polonarua in Sri Lanka. Polonarua, this 2,000-year-old monastery, and in the cliffs are carved these huge marble statues of the Buddha, which Thomas Merton said were the most wonderful works of art he had ever seen. In fact, they, well, I remember going to see them. You go across this carpet of green grass and you come up to this cliff of the seated Buddha and the Buddha resting bef- before Parinirvana. Huge marble statues. And they seem like they're alive. They're more alive than some people I know. Um, and he looked at them and he wrote, he said, looking at these Buddhas, peaceful and empty, I see the silence of these extraordinary faces the great smiles, huge and subtle, filled with every possibility, questioning nothing, rejecting nothing. The great smiles of peace, not of emotional resignation, but of a peace that is seen through every question without trying to discredit anyone or anything, without any refutation. The whole world is seen as it is, arising in emptiness, and everything is connected in compassion. To me, this was the most beautiful vision in the world. Let's sit. the great smile of peace that is seen through every question without trying to discredit or refute a single thing, just being in its presence in the mystery. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.